Now, I know you know this, but I am a sinner. And I'm only saved by the grace of God. And it's only by the grace of God I am what I am. And it's only by the grace of God you are what you are. Amen? Amen. With that firmly in place, what this spiritual growth campaign is about is calling us to spiritual progress in the Christian life. Too often, we set the bar low in the Christian life. Too low. That's what I talked about the first week. We talk about the Christian life in terms of fumbling around and falling down and getting up and almost being um, content with failure because that's, in fact, after all, we're human. But I hope I was able to show that the bar for the Christian life is God himself. Be holy for I am holy. Be perfect for I am perfect. Be imitators of God as beloved children. The bar of the Christian life, even though you will be imperfect, is to strive for the perfection of the Lord. So what I'm doing in this campaign is setting the bar as high as God is set so that we can aim for something. Like John so adequately said, if you aim for nothing, you'll hit it every time. And if we aim so low in the Christian life, That's not going to promote progress and advancement and joy and humility and righteousness and fruitfulness in the Christian life. The way you aim for those things is you pursue them. Pursue righteousness and joy and holiness and fruitfulness in the Christian life. So aim for the glory of God, not less. Last week, I encouraged you to pursue a closer fellowship with God. And I gave you some ways um, that I think we can do that. Um, But then the second half of the sermon was about the means of grace. And that's what this, the rest of the series is about. Excuse me. It's about what God has given us to live a holy life. He has given us Today, we're going to look at the most fundamental difference between a Christian and someone who does not know Christ. What is the thing that makes us different? Metaphysically, in reality, is there something that makes us different? The answer is definitely, 100%, absolutely yes. So turn with me today, Galatians, to uh, Galatians 5, verses uh, 16 through 26. There is something that makes you different. Because when you believed in Christ, you were not just forgiven of sins. You were not just justified. You were not just adopted by means of transaction, you were given the Holy Spirit. You were given the very Spirit of God. The way we advance in the Christian life, most fundamentally, is by walking by the Spirit or keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. 
So I'm going to read Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26, or 16 through 25 right now. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What's the difference between a dead man and a live one? I think, obviously, the difference is something animates the body of the living person. There is some principle of life in the body of the living person that does not exist in the dead person. In a very similar way, throughout the New Testament, we see that the difference, the thing that separates a spiritually dead person and a spiritually alive person is that somebody or something animates the spirit of the spiritually alive person. Something animates the spirit of a spiritually alive person. And that animating power, that principle of strength, is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of Christ whom he has sent down and who lives in us and enables us to defeat the flesh and to live a holy, righteous, joyful, loving, peaceful, faithful, gentle life. <clears throat> so, in this passage that I just read, I want you to see that we're not passive in the Christian life. Right? You're not just an observer in the Christian life. He says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Keep in step with the Spirit. And so the grace of God has given you freedom from the penalty of sin through the death of Christ. The grace of God has also united you to Christ who has risen again into heaven. And you will follow that same resurrection because you're united to Christ. 
And the grace of God has also given you the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, who enables you to will and to work for God's good pleasure and live a victorious life over soul-destroying corruption. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. <clears throat> You're not passive. We must live by the Spirit. That's If we're going to make progress in the Christian life, we need to have this in the front of our minds. We need to walk by the Spirit. Now, as by way of the theological background, I just want to answer a question because in the Old Testament, um, God supervised his people with a law. That's the way he supervised and organized his people, right? It was through the Old Testament law. I think it was 613 laws. Now, obviously, what could a law do for somebody? It could tell you you're a sinner, and then it can condemn you for that sin, but it could not enable you to defeat that sin. It could not enable you to live a righteous life, right? So the law was a tutor to bring us to righteousness, Paul says. And Paul also calls it, therefore, the ministry of death. Because it only communicated that you were a sinner. And you deserved nothing but the wrath of God. Yes, it expressed the heart of God. But there is no way that you could live up to it. So all it communicated to you was failure on your part. And did not give you the ability to accomplish what it required of you. That is why there is a promise of a new covenant in the Old Testament. The new covenant promise you see in Jeremiah 31-33 most explicitly. Jeremiah says, For this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write on their hearts and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. You see what the New Covenant is about. The New Covenant, another word for the Gospel. Another, the New Testament is the Latin version of New Covenant. It's just that we've stuck with, with transliterating the Latin Testament to tes, from testamentum to testament. So we have New Testament, but literally it's New Covenant. We're reading the New Covenant when we read the New Testament. And so, the New Covenant is that you've been forgiven of your sin through the work of Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection, and you've been empowered through the Holy Spirit. So God's plan for creating a people after his own heart was to put his own spirit in them and to write his laws on their heart. You with me? That's the promise of the new covenant. You are enabled. If you're a Christian, you're enabled to live a life that you could not live before you were a Christian. Follow me on this. Something animates your spirit now. And you're able to live for God 
in a way that you could never live for God before. You have the Holy Spirit. Now the law is written on your heart. Because you're not just forgiven, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And you can live a righteous and joyful life in Christ. So Nitty and I, well, I remember one time we, <clears throat> we were driving back from something. We're in New Jersey, which has the... It's, if you're going to get lost, it's going to be in New Jersey. And so we got lost in New Jersey. And we were driving down some, some major highway. I, think, I forget what it was now. But our phones weren't grabbing any internet service at all. And we didn't know if we were going the right way. If we were going south, east, or west. We didn't know what we were doing. And so we stopped at one of those little um, gas stop areas. And they, were, they sold maps there. We still weren't grabbing internet service. But so we picked up a map of New Jersey and we kept dry, driving and we looked at the signs and finally we were able to figure out where we were. And we were able to follow that map back into uh, a location we knew. And then the GPS has started working. But I was thinking that is such a good analogy of the old, old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant you had a law and that was like a road map. You were looking at the map, in, in, and this is telling you what to do, but you don't really know where you are. You're not really enabled to do it, but the GPS actually gives you on-the-spot directions to get to the location you need to get to. It speaks to you, the GPS. That's the Holy Spirit. So we're not talking about a subjective criteria. It is very objective it, the difference is God has changed governing his people from the external law to an internal indwelling. From the external to an internal enablement. That's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant for how you live as God's people. So a Christian, as a Christian, you're guided by the Holy Spirit. The internal law. And Galatians 4, 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And we no longer serve in the old way of the letter, Romans 7, 6, but in the new way of the Holy Spirit, enabled. So, if we're going to make spiritual progress with that theological truth in place, the first thing you need to know is that you are not powerless against sin. Um, too many Christians believe they're powerless against sin. I was listening to a podcast um, a few years ago, and this always stuck with me. It's John Piper's podcast. And he had someone write into it, feeling helpless with his sin. And here's what the writer said. He said, I have been a Christian my whole life, but I have fallen deeply into sexual sin over a period of many years. My past includes pornography, an adulterous relationship with another man's wife, and prostitution 
I have never stopped fighting these sins. Sometimes I find myself powerless against these sins. How do I overcome this helpless drifting into sins? Now, today, I, I am afraid that we have too many people giving... I've heard preachers, when, when they're confronted with things like this, say, well, you have misplaced loves or something, um, and there's really not a call, a call to something more powerful than the life just presented to us. And so Piper's response, I think, was on the spot. Because he said, if you truly are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit within you. And so, you are not helplessly drifting into sin. Piper said, what you need to do, if you indeed are a Christian, is to lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight the path for your feet. You are not a jellyfish caught in the current of lust. You are enabled by the Holy Spirit to live a life more powerful than the flesh. You are enabled to follow God. Romans 6.14, Paul tells us, For sin will have no dominion over you, because you are not under law, but under grace. The reason, brother and sister, sin does not have dominion over you is because of God's grace. <coughs> sin will not have dominion over you. So what I'm going to encourage you to do, because I know there are people who struggle with things, but you are not helpless. And that sin has no power in your life. It has no authority in your life. You can kill it and put it to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to understand if you're going to walk by the Spirit you must believe that you have the Holy Spirit. Now I'm speaking to Christians obviously. If you don't know if you're a Christian, what you need to do is cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ, who extends an arm before you, and always holds out, is always knocking, who always says, while it is still today, do not harden your heart. And he stands there with a loving and firm and strong arm, extending grace and mercy to you. The forgiveness of sins, union with him, and eternal life in which to hope. Christ has died for your sins and rose again. Your job, if you are not a believer, is to repent and believe. Repent means you get to turn away from death. You get to turn away from corruption. And you get to turn away to you get to turn to the way, the truth, and the life in whom is joy abounding. So, 
You need to change your belief. I was just talking to Ray about this earlier. Many Christians even will have the belief that they are worthless, um, a depraved wretch, that they, they're, they're, they have a sense that they, they're just bathed in guilt and worthlessness. But that is not you. You are a child of the living God. I mean, you are, he has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. If the Father has adopted you as a child, you are not worthless. And you need not bathe yourself in guilt and sorrow. Life is so much more better than that in Christ. You're a son and you're a daughter. But I'm calling you to something now. Because you're a son or daughter, live like a child of the king. Strengthen your knees and make straight the path for your feet. And you can do it through God's power. So, that's the first thing we need to do. We need to believe that we have the Holy Spirit and enabled to live a life of victory and power in God. Now the question then is, how do I walk by the Spirit? So I have the Holy Spirit. How do I walk by the Spirit? I'm going to give you five ways to walk by the Spirit. Or to keep in step with the Spirit. First, understand that the Spirit is bringing you into opposition with the flesh. He's bringing you into opposition at war with your flesh. Your flesh is not your skin in the Bible. Your flesh is sensual desire, divisiveness, hatefulness, envy, self-centeredness, bitterness, anger, twistedness, Darkness, it smells like wounds and death. It is sadness and dark. It is cold and damp. It's deceitful. And it's, it is governed by the accuser. But the Spirit is God in you. And God in you. The Holy Spirit, He produces joy and peace and warmth and fellowship and light and life and victory and power. That's what the Holy Spirit produces in your life. And the Spirit, that Spirit, is bringing you into opposition with the flesh. Therefore, the evidence that you are truly a Christian is not the absence of any struggle against sin. The evidence that you are a Christian is that you are struggling against sin. Is that there is warfare. It's not the absence of warfare. It's the presence of warfare. That's how you know that you're a Christian. You want assurance? There's your assurance. 
our good friend Paul Washer. Paul Washer. <laughs> um, said, the proof of conversion is not the absence of warfare with the flesh, but on the contrary. One of the greatest evidences that we have been truly born again is that our fellowship with the flesh has been denounced and that we have declared war against it without any intention of truce. That's the evidence that you're a Christian. It's, to, it's not that you won't, won't sin anymore. It's that you will no longer live at peace with your sin. So you are not passive, nor are you called to be passive in the Christian life. War against the flesh. The flesh wars against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, but you are enabled to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. That means to operate with the Holy Spirit in your life and put the flesh to death. The problem... Again, I'm, I'm going to, just for this series, I'm going to keep on picking on evangelicalism. The problem is, again, that our evangelical culture promotes a too cordial relationship with sin. Far too cordial. Paul says, let love be genuine. Hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. There's a, a good article I came across. You can look it up. It's called Five Wrong Ways to Talk About Sin. And I was always struck by, um, I forget which number, maybe number two or three. The author says, there's the youth group way of talking about sin. And he says, when the discussion moves along, people will talk about areas of struggle. One person shares then another person identifies with the same struggle, and pretty soon you have people chuckling over their shared foibles and faults. At that point, you get a discussion of sin that treats it more like chewing your nails rather than a serious, soul-destroying plague with real-world and this-in-the-next-world repercussions. I want us to see sin as governed by the Satan, the accuser. I want you to see sin as far more subtle than we give it credit for sometimes. I think, I think that what I just read, the youth group way of talking about sin, by my reading of the Bible, does not correspond to the way the New Testament talks about sin. Jesus said, but Jesus was very pointed about sin. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and then that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. 
That is not a cordial relationship with sin. That is that is somebody who hates sin, despises it, and does everything that he or she can to remove it from themselves. Paul says the same thing in Romans 8.12, or maybe it's 8.13. He says, if you, So then, brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you see the seriousness that Jesus and Paul talked about sin with? It was a very weighty thing for them. This is not something we laugh at or take lightly. I want us to be a people, to be a church, who hates what is evil and holds fast to what is good. Sin is not something to just sit around and confess. It's something to confess and then kill. And we should be a people who hate evil and hold fast to what is good in that way. So, the first thing you do is you understand that the Spirit is bringing you into opposition with the flesh. The second way to keep in step with the Spirit is to identify obvious sins in your life and stop doing it. Identify obvious sins and stop doing it. Now, I'm not pretending that this is easy, but it's a common sense endeavor. Look at our text today. Uh, Galatians 5. He says um, in verse 20, Now the works of the flesh are evident. It's evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. I mean, it's obvious that sorcery is not of God. It is obvious that orgies are not of God. And so this is, not, this is not a very penetrating, mysterious endeavor. What are the works of the flesh? Identify them and resolve to stop doing them in your life. So what you need to do is you need to think with, to yourself right now, what are they? What are those sins that take advantage of me? Now there are, the, the thing that makes this difficult is because some of you are older brothers and some of you are younger brothers. And an older brother is going to sin more brazenly than a younger brother will. Remember Jesus' parable, the younger brother, he goes, he spends his money on prostitutes, he goes and he lives a wild life, then he comes back and he repents. So there's this, there's a dramatic up and down if you're younger brother-ish. But if you're older brother-ish, your sins are far more subtle than that. Your sins are... Not that a younger brother can't have these sins, and an older brother can't do extreme things, but there's a tendency, I think. 
things like pride and envy, things like gossip and hatefulness. It's, it's those inward, inward elements of corruption that Satan will sow in your heart to try to overcome you and get an advantage on you. So, what are the older brother or younger brother sins in your life? To complicate the matter, there are sins of omission and there are sins of commission. That is, there are sins you do and things that you don't do that qualify as sin. So there's older brother sins and younger brother sins. There's sins of omission and there's sins of commission. All of them are corruption in you. And we can put it to death. So what I would like you to do right now is just think, while I'm talking even, about those things in your life that you want to see removed. And even now, as I speak, resolve with me to make an earnest decision to put it to death from this day forward until death finally does you part for good. The third way you keep in step with the Holy Spirit is by taking away the power of sin by cutting off its lifelines, its lines of supply. Now Jesus said, if your right hand offends you, cut it off and throw it away. In this image, it's the right hand that's causing you to sin. But what, what are those what are those avenues that sin travels down in your life? What are those lifelines of sin in your life? What you need to do is cut them away so that they cannot travel down that route anymore into your heart. So maybe it's computers or channels. Maybe it's people or situations. Maybe it's social media or alcohol whatever it is there's nothing wrong with computers there's nothing wrong with TV channels there's nothing wrong with social media or people the problem is it depends on what you're surrounding yourself with and what becomes an avenue of temptation for you N.T. Wright talks about this. He says, to put something to death, you must cut off its lines of supply. It is futile and self-deceiving to bemoan one's inability to resist the last stage of temptation when other earlier stages have gone by unnoticed or even eagerly welcomed. Every Christian has the responsibility to investigate the lifelines of whatever sins are defeating him personally and to cut them off without pity. So, this is what I'm encouraging you to do. Not only identifying the sin in your life, but identifying the lifelines of sin in your life. Because Satan will keep pumping temptation through that thing. And be radical about it. Don't be afraid to be radical about it. Cut that off because it's holding you back from being fruitful for God. Paul told Timothy, 
He, he envisioned us as vessels in a house, like cups and forks and knives. And we have different parts in God's kingdom. But he told Timothy, if any vessel, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will then be a vessel for honorable use. Don't you want to be a vessel for honorable use? I do. I want to be honorably used by God for his kingdom. Whether it's my forkness or my knifeness or my cupness in the kingdom of God, I want to be honorably used. So I want to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, cleanse myself. No one's going to use a dirty cup to serve in the kingdom. Or dirty forks covered with grime and filth. Cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable and then you will be a vessel for honorable use. You know, we wonder why Jesus said some produce 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. The first answer to that is some people have an extraordinary call in their life, like the Apostle Paul, right? Extraordinary call, struck down on the Damascus Road. The second answer to that, though, is some people are more fruitful simply because they made their, themselves more fruitful. It's as simple as that. And it's, it doesn't, it's not always a mystery why somebody is more fruitful for the kingdom, more useful. It's because they've made themselves more useful for the kingdom. Therein lies the parable of the talents. Right? The Lord gives one person one, five, and ten. What are you doing with what God has given you? You can think about that in terms of everything God has given you in life, but not least in terms of the Holy Spirit whom he's given you. So, you need to find the lifelines, the lines of supply to your sin, and cut that off, because that's an avenue of temptation. Don't make provision for the flesh to gratify its desire, Paul says. Fourth way to keep in step with the Holy Spirit is to seek to catch sin in the act and kill it on the spot. This is called mortification. You know, like a mortician it deals with death. What we're called to do with sin is not just passively live a cordial relationship with it. We are called to put it to death. Um... Because it's very deadly. James 1, 14 and 15 tells us that each person... See, sin is not something you do only. It's something that does you. Something that takes advantage of you. James 1, 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So there's your desire leading to sinful actions. Then, if, if sin has gained full expression in you, it can bring forth death. 
Sin wants to incarnate itself in you. I know I've told you this before a number of times, but sin wants to take on flesh in you. And so perhaps, simply enough, maybe you're angry with somebody, like Jesus talked about. What sin wants to do is take on flesh in you and express itself in you through action or even a hateful word with your tongue. It'll use your tongue. Sin will gladly use your tongue any way it can take advantage of your body and use itself to gain an incarnation through you and self-expression through you. Then you become an agent of the enemy through that action. So sin is trying to gain an incarnation through your body. Each person is tempted by his own, own desire, but desire gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's grown up, brings forth death. It is a vi- it's a virus. Sin is a virus. It's not just an act. You can think about it as a living organism. And that is why Jesus told Cain that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you. So mortify sin before it takes advantage of you. So when sin entices you through lust or anger or pride, before it achieves expression in you, our job is to notice when that is happening and put it to death on the spot. So this is an on-the-spot discipline. Meet lust with a combative, defiant attitude and put it to death on the spot and determine to slaughter it there before it leads to the next stage and before it takes over your members. John Owen, the Puritan, writes, To mortify means to put, to any, to put any living thing to death to kill a man or any other living thing is to take away the principle of all its strength, its vigor and power, so that it cannot act or exert or put any forth any put forth any actings of its own. So that is the key to victory. It's to notice when sin is trying to lure you away on the spot. And then when you notice when it's trying to take advantage of you, you put it to death right there. I almost shake my head when that's happening. I try to shake it off almost. There's like a physical action because I, I imagine sin kind of setting on me. and I want to shake that off physically. Um, so if you see me doing that in the hallway or something. Um, so notice when sin is trying to gain an incarnation in you. Be spiritually alert and attentive. You can't prevent an angry thought, but you can stop that thought from turning into a word or actions. And you might think, oh, you're just talking about saying mean things. No, no. It's much more serious than that. It's, it's the enemy trying to gain a slight advantage over you and turn you in the other direction 
of godliness. C.S. Lewis made this point very adequately in Mere Christianity when he wrote, Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, that part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central part of you into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with itself, or else into one that is in a, in a state of war and hatred with God and with fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to the one state or the other. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You have a principle of strength and power in you that can lead you into eternity and to become a strong, firm man of inner fortitude or a woman of inner fortitude and strength and become more Christ-like. Being, we're being conformed into the image of Christ. So this is the goal of our discipleship is to become more Christ-like in our life. Not be at peace with sin. And not think sins are too small to really care about. Become useful to the Master. So understand that sin is trying to incarnate itself in you. And He will do that, sin will do that, in different ways in us. The next way we keep in step with the Spirit is a positive way. Because we're not just called to mortify the flesh, we're called to vivify. That means bring to life the virtues of the Holy Spirit. So vivify means to bring to life the qualities and virtues that the Holy Spirit is producing in you. So we're not just talking about killing sin, we're talking about cultivating a Christ-like character and godly virtue by striving for those things. Um, the fruit of the Spirit is, first of all, love. Wanting the best for someone. Joy. Not anxiety or depression. Peace. Not hatred and quarreling. Patience. Being long-suffering with others. Kindness. Not wimpiness, but... Dangerous but good, like I was saying last week. Self-control. Not being overcome by my passions but 
having the ability through the through God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome the passions. So you can submit your tongue as an instrument of righteousness when you make it bless someone who curses you. That's what we're talking about. You can submit your hands in the same way as an instrument of righteousness when you make it contribute and help someone even when they're against you. You can, you can submit your mind, your affections as an instrument of righteousness when you make it do the thing that the Holy Spirit is doing in you. You intentionally cooperate with the Holy Spirit and you are turning that central part of you into more of a Christ-like man or woman. Last, last way I'll give you today, and I don't mean to say that these are the only ways, these are the definite and fixed ways to walk by the Holy Spirit. These are just the ways that I think the Lord has shown me and in my study of Scripture um, and have been fruitful for me in my life. Lastly, be intentional about the atmosphere you're creating for yourself. Um, we talk a lot about Christian liberty in evangelical circles. And that is true. We, we are free from legalism. We're, we must not equate our salvation with doing and not doing various things. Now, you could take what I just said the wrong way or the right way. Because Paul does clearly say that those who practice orgies and sensuality and, and sorcery, that's the kind of person who will not inherit the kingdom of God. But I'm talking about uh, liberty to do things that might be seen as uh, looked at as debatable. Um, whatever you do, it, don't, don't live through the lens of liberty only. Live through the lens of prudence and wisdom as well. You know, Paul said, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be controlled by anything. So don't confuse Christian liberty. This is a subtle, a subtle way the enemy tries to get an advantage of you. Don't confuse Christian liberty with sin and foolishness. So I'm just encouraging you to, to watch out for the atmosphere you're creating for you and your family especially. Be intentional about the things that you're allowing in your sphere of influence because what you will do is you will begin to assimilate those things into your heart. Slowly but surely. So what seeds are you sowing into your heart on a daily basis? When you, whatever you're watching, listening to, do you come away, does it sow seeds of doubt and um, anger in your heart? Or does it sow in you a hunger for God and godliness? Does it sow in you a zeal for the Lord? A boldness 
to preach the gospel to that guy sitting right there on the park bench. So what, what is it? What are these things sowing in my heart that I'm surrounding myself with? Um, Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever, some, whatever someone sows, that will he also reap. For whoever, whoever sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So do you see the flesh versus spirit throughout this sermon that I'm trying to get across? They're warring factions. They're opposed to one another. But you are not a jellyfish caught in the current of your fleshly desires which are sure to be there you have power and strength through the Holy Spirit now really quickly the thing that Christians struggle with a lot and are afraid to talk about it is pornography I want this to be a place because this is such a prevalent problem I want this to be a place where pornography is utterly detest but at the same time it's a place where we can be honest about it and open about it and we can work together on overcoming it. So if you if you have something that you're struggling with you need to put that to death because it, I, I don't want to understate the danger of pornography. It is a soul-destroying thing and it is very serious. So I'm trying, to, I'm trying to play a line here of not condemning you and encouraging you to get, get with it and put it to death. Um, one statistic I saw that said 55% of married men say that they watch pornography at least once a month. And 25% of married women say they watch pornography at least once a month. So this is evidently a problem in the world and even in the church. If you struggle with this, I have the statistics up there on the back, some statistic on the back on that sheet that's standing up with my email. I want to help you defeat this. It is very serious. I don't want to act like it's, um, it's a, it, but it's so common that we need to be a place where, we, where I can help you out of this, and I'm not going to condemn you. So what I don't want to do is for you to have guilt or shame right now. We were talking about this before church as well. I am not sowing a message of guilt or shame in you right now. I am sowing a message of hope and ability. A message of power and joy and freedom from this kind of thing. So, if you do struggle, I'm here for you. I want to help you get over this. It is very serious. My email is there. 
feel free to reach out to me and um, I'm here for you. With that said, keep in step with the Spirit is what I'm saying in this, in this sermon. We talk so often people talk about spiritual growth and think of it in terms about getting more of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. Spiritual growth and spiritual progress is not about getting more of the Holy Spirit, but it's about the Holy Spirit getting more of you in your life. Keep in closer step with Him. Walk closer to Him in your life. And this involves putting sin to death. And if you cleanse yourself, you will be useful to the Master in vivifying the Holy Spirit in holiness, joyfulness, Christ-likeness, sowing to yourself those virtues of Christ-likeness. So I want you to keep the love of God in your heart by keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. I'm here for you. Whatever sins you struggle with, I want to prayerfully walk through those things with you. But I am calling you to a greater degree of holiness. Because we will not progress. We will not progress by simply saying that we struggle with something. We need to take definitive steps through God's power, through the help of one another, to destroy that thing. So there are people here that can help you in the very thing I talked about. Um, so I want, I want you to be very open to getting help if you need it. Let's close in a word of prayer.